Luke chapter 8 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and here we come to chapter 8, and uh, I'm not being a very good boy about stopping at the chapters, and um, uh, it's just, well, what can I say? Uh, so we pick things up in verse 22 of, of chapter 8. And uh, the context of this particular event uh, that uh, Mark's gospel tells us that it occurred at the end of the day uh, on the day that Jesus uh, taught the parable of the soils or the parable of the, so the sower as we saw uh, last week. And so this is what we're rolling right into. Now it happened on a certain day that he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples. So they are in the area of the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to get on a boat, and Jesus gave them instructions, you notice, and he said to them, that's worth underlining, and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. So that uh, command that he gave them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake that constitutes the Word of God, a promise of God to them. Uh, Jesus didn't say, um, let's give it a shot. Uh, let's go halfway across the Sea of Galilee and drown. Uh, uh, he could have said those things, but he didn't. He's given them the promise that we're going to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And with that instruction, that command, they then launched out. And uh, as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. And of course, uh, he is exhausted, even when the storm in just a moment becomes uh, very, very fierce. Like, how in the world could somebody uh, sleep through that? And, and yet, it gives us an idea of how much he was giving out of himself and uh, uh, spiritually certain, physically, emotionally, mentally, and in, in uh, serving and caring for people. And when he got a chance for uninterrupted, or at least he thought, rest, uh, he goes straight to sleep and could uh, really sleep through anything. But he's the picture of peace uh, here. And uh, the picture of peace certainly related to uh, the promise that he had made. He doesn't share the anxiety that the disciples are going to feel. And, and then a windstorm uh, came down on the lake, and this is common with the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's so low, uh, and the, the mountains that are all around it, uh, that the, the winds, when they come in and the cool air hits the hot air and all of these things through what are called the horns of Hinnom. And, uh, and that uh, Sea of Galilee can turn into a very violent body of water in a very, very short period of time. And that's exactly what happened. A windstorm came down on the lake and uh, they're out in, in the middle of the lake and they were filling with water and they were in jeopardy. Now, that's, I don't... Um, I'm not that uh, fond of boats. I'm not, uh, uh, I love, listen, I think boats are great. It's water I'm not fond of. Now, I like uh, dry ground and terra firma, and um, none of these uh, continents would have been discovered uh, if it had been left up to me to get on a ship and uh, uh, head out toward the sunset or the sunrise. And, and so here is this uh, 
storm that they're in the middle of, and the boat begins to fill with water, and they are legitimately in jeopardy. And we need to know that. So it doesn't say, uh, you know, it came through and sprinkled a little bit, and there was a slight wind, and the water got a little bit choppy. And uh, because very few of our trials in life are uh, the wind blew a little bit, and it sprinkled a little bit, and uh, the water got a little choppy. Uh, This particular event here is intended to uh, speak encouragement into our lives for the situations in which we think we're going to die. We will not survive this trial. We will not uh, make it through this particular uh, journey. And so these are extraordinarily difficult circumstances that they find themselves in. So here you have an interesting situation that Paul talks about in his letter to the church at Corinth. And he talks about um, taking uh, uh, captivity of every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So here is this terrible storm and everybody is now convinced that they're going to perish as a result of the storm. So there you have uh, a thought. Uh, But Jesus has said, let us, plural, go to the other side of the lake, the Word of God on the other hand. And the Bible tells us that when our circumstances in life are, uh, look like they're going to violate whatever promise God has given to us in His Word, that it is His Word that we're to believe, and then take these thoughts into captivity and bring them in subjection to the Word uh, of, of God. Now, that, that's easier said than done, but it can, it can be done. And it's one of the reasons that the, the passage is uh, here for us. I... Um, can safely say that the, they're going to get to the other side of, of the lake, as we'll see in an hour and a half. It be, will be there, and uh, that's not in doubt. Um, but So that's never in doubt related to any promise in the Word of God. And you can read every promise in the Word of God in the same way that you would read, let us uh, cross over to the other side of the lake. It's going to come to pass. And I think we've all experienced situations in our life where we look at it and say, it's so sad that my life and this situation is going to be the first time that this promise of God is going to be violated because He's not going to come through for me. And yet, a little time goes by, however much faith we do or we don't have, and we get to the other side. The promise is fulfilled whatever the promise might be. The only thing that's in jeopardy, uh, our lives are not in jeopardy in terms of circumstances or anything like that. The only thing that's being determined in terms of whether I trust God's Word or not is how much I enjoy um, the journey to the other side. Jesus is the picture of peace. He knows what's going to happen. He made the promise, and they are not. Maybe you've had this happen a time or two in your life. It certainly happened plenty of times in my life where I I look at it and I just, the situation, the circumstances, and it's just, they're so overwhelming. They're as big as this kind of a a trial. And I think, I'm not going to make it. And then when we ultimately get to the other side of it and and we land and the promise comes uh, to pass, 
I kick myself and I think to myself, I could have been at peace this entire time if I had only had more faith, and not faith in faith, but faith in what He had promised that He would do. And of course, that's a work of sanctification in our lives. We're growing in, the, in that uh, in our lives. Nobody handles those things perfectly all of our lives. And so, here is this circumstance that uh, arises, a major circumstance, a life-threatening circumstance that rises and exalts itself against the knowledge uh, of God and convinces them that they're all going to die. And so, they came to him and they woke him up. I wonder which one did that. (laughs) Saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. So, they use the the plural here uh, as well. Uh, 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 not only are we going to perish, but you're going to perish. And uh, they're all kind of in the same boat. And I'm not trying to be too clever. It just came out of my mouth. And so uh, then he arose and he uh, uh, comes to the surface of the boat. He rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And uh, they ceased and there was then a calm in the storm. So the first thing uh, Jesus, he has on his mind, he has two rebukes in mind. One, his first rebuke is to rebuke uh, nature or whatever was behind the storm. There is something about uh, the words that are used in, uh, in this passage that speaks to the fact that this might have, uh, storm might have had a, a demonic origin in it. And, and Jesus uh, speaks to the storm or speaks to the devil behind the storm, be muzzled, and it's brought to an end. And that's a possibility uh, here. And so he rebukes the storm and potentially even uh, a demonic influence behind the storm, and there was a calm. And then he rebukes the disciples. He said to them, where is your faith? Uh, Ouch. I mean, it's like when I kind of flub up a little bit and make a mess of things, I'm, I'm looking for a hug. I'm looking for some kind of a note from him telling me it's going to be okay. I'm not, I'm not looking for a rebuke. And yet he rebukes him and he says, where is your faith? You had my promise. And you believe the circumstances over my promise. That's, that's the, the definition of not having faith in a circumstance. And so he rebukes them and says, where is your faith? Now, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's pretty straightforward. You can't misunderstand that this is a rebuke. And they would have certainly understood it as a rebuke. But sometimes um, we need the Lord to speak to us with that kind of clarity to wake us up to the importance of walking by faith and believing His promises, especially while the storm is still going on around us. So here we sit tonight. I don't know what's going on in your life. You don't know what's going on in my life. I don't know what happened to you this week or what happened to you this year. I don't know what happened to you today. I don't know what's going to happen to you or me or anything uh, tomorrow. And so, how many of us might be sitting here today in just such a circumstance? 
and we're looking and saying, Lord, would you give me a word in the middle of this? And yet, he has given us many, many words and promises in, in, uh, uh, for when we find ourselves in trial. And he may just speak right to your heart and say, where is your faith? Where is your faith? I gave you my word. I can't do everything for you or you'll remain a baby all of your life, spiritually speaking. You'll be ill-prepared for heaven. And so he just says, where is your faith? And they, they took that message. As, it was this, uh, in just a handful, less than a handful of words. It's like an entire uh, sermon. And sometimes we just need to hear that. And it snaps us back in. That's right. That's right. And they were afraid and they marveled. They said to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water. And uh, they uh, obey him. And then uh, they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes. And uh, in the area of, of Gadara, I always like this a particular stop on a trip to Israel. It's so desolate, and, but it, it really helps you. you n- now you can just go online and get pictures of it if you can't get over there, but, um, but it, it's this hilly kind of uh, country and lots of caves. It sits, sits right on, uh, the area sits uh, right in the north of, of the Sea of Galilee and filled with caves that uh, a demoniac could live in. And so they go there, and, and they went uh, to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And he stepped out on the land, and uh, again, if, if, having been there, if the boat were to land right there in the area of Gadara, and he and the disciples would come on land, you can uh, actually just see the demoniac coming down uh, toward the water uh, to where he is. And so uh, he stepped out on the land, and there met him a certain man. Now, we're going to see an interesting thing in this chapter where uh, the way that God and the way that the Holy Spirit describes people for whatever, um, whatever they may be in terms of their life history or whatever they may be in terms of their present circumstance. Uh, I guarantee you, as we read about this demoniac here in just a moment, uh, nobody saw this man as a man. And there is that tendency for us to begin to view people uh, uh, rather than a human being uh, underneath all of our problems or all of our hang-ups or all of the bad decisions that we've made in life and to cease to see that person as a human being under there and just to give them some kind of a label. And we're a country that loves to uh, really label everything. But the Holy Spirit describes him as a man. I don't know when he became demon-possessed, and, uh, but there was a time where a mother nursed this boy there was a time where he learned to walk. There was a time he wasn't uh, possessed by a, de- a, a legion of demons his in, entire life. And God looks all the way past all of that. There's a human being de- in there all the way under there. And God's going to let that human being out. And it is important for us to look as we deal with people who, uh, and God you know, he cleans up our life, he straightens us up, he makes a, uh, something very nice out of the mess that he inherited from us, and then all of a sudden we want to look down on uh, uh, everybody else uh, in, in, uh, 
the, as a result uh, of it and begin to, to um, uh, and I'm fumbling here a little bit because it's reminding me of a daily bread devotional, I think it was earlier this week, where uh, one of the writers wrote about the fact that uh, they wanted to get in a little better shape and health and this kind of thing, and they started to go to the gym, and, and they ended up getting, you know, fit and that kind of a thing. And then they found themselves immediately looking down on everyone else who wasn't as fit as they were, as if they had never been the other person at all. And the, this thing that we have uh, within us, and to realize that uh, as much of a mess as, as, as any of us, anybody in the world can make of their lives, there's still a human being all the way down there that God wants to reach and that, that He wants to, to save. Now, I do believe in, um, and it's just something I believe. I have no really uh, extensive biblical proof that I can give to you, but it should be enough for you that I believe it. Just, okay, you laugh, of course. And that's exactly how it should be. But I, I, I always had the the wondered about the fact of um, why, why are certain people demon-possessed and then others aren't? And why is a guy possessed of uh, at least 2,000 demons? They fill a, a herd of pigs of 2,000. Uh, a legion, he's fill, uh, a legion, his name, uh, the demons are named legion, a uh, Roman legion was 6,000. He's, he's a walking demonic stronghold. And and then, and then when the demons are uh, cast out, we'll get to all of it. It'll be about nine o'clock, but we'll get to all of it right here in the passage. When the demons are cast out uh, of them, they, they want to go into a herd of pigs rather than into uh, the abyss. They want to be in some means of a physical expression. And if it can't be a human being, then they will take pigs rather than the abyss, rather than going into uh, 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 to hell or into Hades. And, and I thought, well, why don't, why don't we see more demon-possessed people? Why don't we see demons possessing people willy-nilly? Uh, one day this demon is possessing this person and then shifts over here and uh, possesses this person and just making a, uh, a madness uh, of the world. And I, I remember hearing uh, Pastor Chuck uh, Smith uh, explain his convictions on it, and his convictions were, which I made my own, were that uh, the devil can't really uh, come to possess us willy-nilly. I don't know what that means, but it, it's one of those terms we use uh, for just kind of doing it however they want to do it. Uh, that a, a demon can't do that unless we open a door. Unless we open a door. Uh, unless there is some kind of a uh, engaging, whether by parents or household or whatever it might be, or an individual starting to tap into uh, the demonic realm. And somehow an openness in their life uh, or a vulnerability even in a young person on the basis of the parents that they, they would then become uh, demon-possessed. And so I think uh, there has to be uh, some kind of something that happens that way uh, for a person to be demon-possessed. And so uh, there met them, Jesus there, a certain man and uh, from the city who had demons for a long time. Now, for me, 20 minutes is a long time to be demon-possessed. I've never been demon-possessed. 
Can you imagine, just can you imagine being demon-possessed under the control of a demon? A demon is uglier, a demon is dirtier, a demon is more defiled than anything you will ever see on the television or hear in any kind of music or any kind of whatever. And now it's inside of you and, and controlling your life. And here he's been demon-possessed, demons plural, for a long time. And the, uh, the devil, of course, Jesus said, wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom is justified by the quality of person that the wisdom uh, produces. And, uh, of course, as we've seen, uh, the, the wisdom of God is justified by the quality of human being that the teaching of the Lord produces universally within mankind. But I'll tell you, the devil reveals uh, his true intent in his heart in anyone that he is allowed to take control of. And you look at the life that resulted in this man, uh, man's life as a result of it. He wore no clothes. Uh, uh, so here's a guy that is just uh, out in the wild, and he's absolutely naked, has no concern at all, no shame, no, no sense of morality, no any of that. Makes me wonder about how much of this, these pictures that get sent all over the place of people sending naked pictures of themselves or, or how unclothed they can get in an Instagram photo or something like that. Um, I certainly know the Holy Spirit's not behind it. And by the way, I'm not on Instagram if you're thinking, how does he know so much about that? I don't know so much about it, uh, but I, I hear these things. Nor did, they, uh, did he uh, live in a house, but in the tombs. So he's living like a dead man, even though he's alive. This is what the devil does uh, to a person. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, he fell down uh, before him, and with a loud voice he said, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? That's a... He's almost a, a seminary graduate in terms of what he knows about Jesus here. He calls him Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. He knows, he, he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he declares Jesus to be the Son of the Most High God, which is to, to, to declare that Jesus is divine as, as the Son of God. So he believes in Jesus as the Messiah. He believes in the humanity of Jesus. He believes in the deity of Jesus. You have liberal seminarians who don't believe any of that about Jesus. And yet here, this devil, uh, demon, knows all of this about him. And you realize in the New Testament book of James, James lets us know uh, that there are no, uh, you would think, oh man, every, every devil, every demon is an, uh, an atheist. Uh, not a single, uh, there's not a single d uh, demon that's an atheist that doesn't believe in the existence of God. Uh, there's not a single devil that's an agnostic that wonders about whether God really exists. They all know, James says, and they tremble at that fact. And we're going to see trembling here in, in just a moment. But powerful what the demonic realm understands about uh, Jesus. And he says, notice, I beg you, do not torment me. And so here is, 
here is the recognition that someone has come on the scene who has a greater authority than the demonic realm, and thus the begging. It is the lesser who always begs from the greater. For he had commanded, Jesus had, that the unclean spirit uh, to come out of the man, for uh, it had often seized him, kept him under guard, uh, bound him with uh, chains and shackles, which he had this kind of supernatural power that he was able to break any bonds that people put on him uh, for their own safety, for his own safety, and he was driven by the demon uh, into the wilderness. What an awful existence uh, that the devil produces in a person's life. And... uh, uh, hell is going to be an awful place. Now, the devil doesn't, uh, the Bible never teaches that the devil is the ruler of the eternal lake of fire. He is a participant. Uh, he is cast in. So there's not, you're not going to see him with a pitch, you know, you're not, hopefully you're not going to see him. But uh, he, he doesn't run the place. He's a participant there. And, uh, but uh, uh, what a hellish place it, it, it must be and it's going to be absence, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? Now, that's weird, but that's what he asks him. What's your name? And he's talking to him like he's a man. And he said, legion, again, a, a Roman legion, 6,000 men, maybe that's how many demons were in him. And he said he, he was, had the name legion because, that's a reason, where many demons had entered into him. And they, uh, all of these demons then proceeded to beg Jesus that he would not command them to go out into the abyss, into Hades. So a young man was talking to me this morning after the service, and one of his friends uh, had done an intensive personal study of the Bible and had come to the conclusion that there is no... um, eternal lake of fire, there is no Gehenna, there is no eternal uh, judgment, and uh, that what happens for the unrighteous after this life, those that reject Jesus Christ, is that there's an annihilation, there's a burning up and they cease to exist, because the idea of an eternal judgment is, uh, is an affront to, um, to their intellect. And of course, this is very, very popular right now. Um, it, is, it has no foundation uh, in the Word of God, but it's popular because that's a difficult doctrine for uh, people uh, to accept and to really kind of understand in terms of uh, looking at it from the vantage point solely of the earth and so we want of the world, and so we want to be accepted by other people, and they say, "Well, how can a God of love and why would and i don 't want to get into all of that because that 's a, a twenty minute uh, tangent on on the thing but uh, but uh, all of it is wrong headed and, and an idea to try and make God uh, in some cases more palatable to the world no he 's not really this, and so we 'll get rid of uh, that aspect of the Bible. but then what do they want next for your approval and for your acceptance to me, it is um, when I live on uh, this earth, just like you do so God is making me like you progressively more and more holy in preparing me for heaven. But I know nothing of the white-hot holiness and righteousness of heaven. 
But it doesn't take much of an imagination on anyone's part, and not on my part, to view from the context of heaven what an awful, unspeakable, indescribable affront it must be to God to have provided salvation to mankind in His Son, and then for man, poor man, so ignorant in that which he knows best, to then sniff at that and to say, I don't need it, I don't want it. Well, I don't want to be in those shoes. When the judgment comes uh, uh, one day related uh, to that. I think that uh, sometimes people will even read the book of Revelation and they see all of the seals and all the bowls and all the trumpets and all the judgment that will happen during those uh, seven years of tribulation and uh, they're mortified by it. And all I uh, can say to that is um, just hang on. And uh, just watch the world continue to go in the direction that it's going in until this becomes a collection of tribes of people who are killing one another, might makes right, all of this other thing, the rejection of God, the arrogance, what happens to a human being when they reject any authority. And if you won't accept God's authority, you won't accept anyone's authority but your own authority. And watch what the world comes, uh, comes to be like. You will beg for God to judge it. You will beg for God to bring it to an end. And so here uh, in, in this place, the existence of Hades, uh, even the waiting place before that judgment that sends uh, uh, Satan in the demonic realm into the eternal lake of fire. Now, there was a herd of many swine um, uh, feeding there on the mountain. And so uh, the demons, they begged Jesus that he would permit them to enter into the swine. And so again, they, the, the swine would rather be in a, a pig, rather than in an animal, than be a disembodied spirit and, and in the abyss. And so Jesus permitted them. And so they go and, and they uh, posi- uh, come in and, and uh, uh, inhabit the, uh, the swine. And they went out of the man, entered the swine, and the herd uh, ran violently down the steep place into the lake, and they drowned. Uh, they, didn't, they were not interested in that experience. And, uh, and, uh, and that is um, the first mention of, uh, uh, of Devil Tam in, in ancient history. I know, I'm ashamed of myself. I really am. It just came to my mind. I should have resisted. I should have resisted. And when those who fed them saw what had happened, those that were tending the pigs, they fled and they ran back into the city and in the country. They went to tell the owners, they weren't the owners of of the herd, to tell the owners of the herd what happened so they don't get in trouble. And uh, then they went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man uh, from whom the demons had departed. And what a picture this is. Isn't it? And look at this description of him. Uh, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed, and in his right mind. 
And how many of us are seated, clothed in, in our right mind uh, tonight only because of, of Jesus entering into our life and impacting us from whatever had us in our particular uh, bondage? So you see this guy, he's, for a long time he's been in this condition. They've tried to shackle him and all of these things. And, and uh, he's a wild man, naked, living in caves, all of this uh, uh, kind of thing. And now they see him in this condition, and their reaction is that they were afraid. Now that's a weird reaction. I'd expect like a hallelujah, or praise God. Or are you the one that's able to do this for this guy? We've been trying for decades to change his life, have had no impact upon him uh, at all. There's none of that. They were afraid. Now, there is, a, there is a, a couple of different opinions here about uh, why they would be afraid. Uh, and, and, uh, and a couple of different opinions about who the, the herd of pigs uh, belong to. Some people believe that, uh, that these were Gentile. It was a Gentile part of, uh, of, uh, of Israel, uh, but Jews did live there. That these, were flock, uh, these herds were owned by Gentiles and they were tended by Gentiles. But it's also believed by some that these were uh, Jews who were raising pork in violation uh, of uh, the law of Moses, certainly for themselves, and so not to eat uh, for themselves, but to sell it uh, to the Gentiles in order to make uh, money. And the idea that Jesus might be killing two birds with one stone here in delivering this man and then also bringing uh, to an end a, uh, an activity that wasn't worthy uh, of a Jew. And that might explain the fact that they were uh, afraid. What's he going to do next to destroy uh, our livelihood? And maybe they had a sense of conviction that what they were doing uh, was wrong. And they also who had seen it told, uh, 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 they also who had seen it told them uh, by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. And so they told the whole story to their owners. Uh, and he was like this, and he said this, and then he, and Jesus did this and this. And then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes, they had come. This is very interesting. Uh, what in the world's happened to that guy out there? So all, everybody comes out. And then their reaction here was not only fear, but they asked Jesus to depart from them. Uh, for they were seized with great fear. And Jesus' response is that he got into the boat and he returned. And so he left him. Jesus is a gentleman. He will never force himself on anyone. You will never find anyone one day in heaven and uh, on a street corner around a big barrel where they got a fire going and smoking and I hate it here and everything. And I was in, in heaven juvie for a while and I don't even know why I didn't want it. Everybody that's going to be in heaven wants to be in, in heaven. And, uh, and nobody's going to be forced there. And Jesus never forces himself on anyone. And so he gets up and he leaves. And there is no record in the biblical record that he ever returned to the region. And that's why it's important. The first time we encounter Jesus, we encounter his power, we encounter who he is, to put our faith in Him immediately. 
rather than telling him to leave because we don't know that we'll have another opportunity. I mean, our lives can be gone, uh, have an aneurysm in a minute and, and uh, be gone into uh, eternity. Now, the man from whom the demons had departed, and again we notice the word man, he then begged Jesus, and he begged him for a certain something, that he might be with him. And so he looks at Jesus, imagine the emotion. I mean, he's been like this for who knows how long. And now he's clothed and he's seated and he's in his right mind. We don't know how long it's been since he experienced those three simple things in life. And now he's experiencing them all over again. He thought they were gone forever. And then here, here it is all back. And so what does he want to do? He does what any of us would want to do. And that is, I'm not letting you out of my sight. I want to follow you wherever you go and, and, uh, in life and, 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 and be a part of whatever uh, uh, that might be. And then uh, Jesus uh, uh, said to him, sent him away saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And so he went his way and he proclaimed throughout, not just his own house, but uh, throughout the city what great things Jesus had done for him. So, um, it, when God saves us and he changes our lives, he may take a number of us and send us to the other side of the world to be a missionary. But it's a very, very small uh, percentage of the body of Christ. And I, I know we're all missionaries, but, you know, foreign missions, what I'm talking about here. And, 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 and so often you can begin to think that that's the, the absolute highest use of my life. Well, it would be if God calls us to that. But you notice that Jesus calls him, you simply go home. I don't want your family or the city that you live in uh, to stop seeing in you day in and day out what I can do with a human life. And who did this in your life? He said, you go home and you live your life before them, and that's how I want you to spend your life. And of course, all of us, when we become Christians, our life changes. It may not be as dramatic as something like this, but as we look and we say, well, how come God hasn't sent me to Algeria or to South Africa or to Kiev or something like that? And, uh, and yet, and we've got in these simple kind of places and what difference does it make and nobody notices and nobody cares. Listen, our lives have changed. And over the long term, as people see that this isn't a flash in the pan, but our lives have really changed, then it has a, a powerful influence on people and a chance uh, to, to glorify God in, in that particular uh, way. And so a testimony. Go tell them your testimony. And testimonies are very, very powerful things. It is interesting that when you, um, I don't know, when, when, don't shout out, but when is the last time you told your testimony to anyone? Your salvation story. Eh, can, a lot of time can go by, can't it? Uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, he told his testimony uh, regularly. Uh, before audiences in large and small is his testimony. 
And a testimony is, is a powerful thing. It's just that story of how I became saved. And the nice thing about it is you don't have to be a, the, a, a theologian. You don't have to be a seminary a graduate just to say to people, this is what I was. And this is what God did. And this is what I've become. And it's very, very difficult to argue with it. And, and so you say, well, okay. I mean, if I tell my testimony to some uh, intellectual, they'll just look at it and, and they'll just say that um, it, that's not an evidence of, of anything. It's just kind of uh, 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 anecdotal and, uh, and fine for you except for the fact that God gives great weight to our testimony. And then when the person has to, for all of the things that they know in their intellect, watch the quality of life that we enjoy in, in terms of peace, in terms of joy in our lives that they do not possess, then it's up to the Holy Spirit to then make that a powerful witness in their life. And many people have come to know the Lord, not because somebody worked them through intellectually every problem that they had or question they had of God about the Bible, but they saw uh, somebody's life changed in that way. It's powerful. Very, very uh, powerful stuff. And so we're told uh, that uh, so it was when Jesus returned. Uh, that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So when he returns from the area uh, of Gadara, there's a crowd that is then uh, waiting for him. And of course, that's the, um, the, the story of Jesus' life in, in that regard. And uh, behold, there came, uh, as he hits land there, and uh, probably came uh, to the city of Capernaum, uh, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And uh, he came, uh, fell down at Jesus' feet, and begged him to come to his house. And then he explained it. For he had only one daughter uh, who was 12 years of age, and she was dying. So, this is serious business. This isn't uh, something where it's like, okay, well, let's pray for her, but, you know, they're going to get okay. It's, uh, she's on death's door. But uh, uh, as he went now, and uh, he, he obeys the request of Jairus, and, and he begins to make his way toward his house, and then the multitudes are thronging him at this point. Imagine now, here is this uh, ruler of the synagogue, and uh, as the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus did a lot of miracles in Capernaum, and the ruler of the synagogue would have been the Jewish man who was responsible for maintaining all of uh, the facility of the synagogue, maintaining and having everything available for the services that would be uh, rendered there. So he's very, very close to uh, Judaism, very, very close to uh, the teachings of the rabbis and, and uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all these kind of, uh, kind of things. And uh, yet here he is, even as a ruler of the synagogue, he comes to Jesus and begs him to come and heal his daughter. Well, this is complicated for him. 
Because at this moment in time, the opposition among the Jewish religious leaders to Jesus is absolutely ascending. They want him dead. And yet here is a man so publicly identified with Judaism in Capernaum, and he publicly comes to Jesus, falls on his knees, and begs him to come and heal his daughter. I don't know when the last time is in your life that you saw a, grand, a grown man fall on his knees and beg anyone for anything. It just doesn't happen. It's an extraordinary circumstance that produces that kind of thing in a person's life. But he realizes that nothing of the religion, nothing of his background, nothing, he would have been a man of prominence, a man of wealth, nothing of his titles, nothing was making a dent in the condition of his, his daughter. And he also knew, and this is where his faith came in, he knew he could do it. He knew Jesus could do it. And so here's all these obstacles that his religious system put in his life to coming to Jesus. That when push came to shove about maybe the second person he loved most in life, he lets all of that go and he comes to Jesus with this uh, need. All of the indoctrination and he, he had heard about him and begs him to come uh, to the house. Now, a woman, while they're now making their way to his house, um, there was a woman that was a part of the crowd, and she had a flow of blood for 12 years. So probably something with her menstrual cycle where it uh, just didn't shut off. So for 12 years, she has bled unnaturally from her body. So you got the 12 and the 12. So on the very same year, Jairus has this daughter, only child, born into his family. And then somewhere else, maybe in the very same city or somewhere else in the land, a woman gets up and like no other time in her life, she begins to flow and it never stops. And they've each got this 12-year uh, history. And with this uh, flow of blood that she had, it tells us that she spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. Um, healthcare has always been expensive. And it's always the juggling act of any nation in the world to try and figure out what is the balance related to all of this. But it's always been expensive. And she spent every penny, all is a, a word, all of her livelihood over tw uh, 12 years trying to find someone who would have the solution to this. And I mean, some of you know the desperation of it. From one person to the next, and then you hear, well, maybe this person, and I heard this, and if you just go over here, they give you four shots a month, and then this, and all, and moving and moving, and this has been her life for 12 years. But it's not just the physical disease that she's dealing with, because she is in Israel and she has a flow of blood. A flow of blood in a woman rendered her ceremonially unclean as a, a Jewish person, according to the law of Moses. So anyone she would touch would be rendered ceremonially unclean. She couldn't attend 
a temple service or a synagogue service because she would render it unclean. So she's got this physical thing she's dealing with and then an isolation that her flow of blood uh, has introduced into her life and, and, and into her reality as well. It's a miserable, miserable place that, that she is in. And so she comes from behind. I can't wait to meet her. It's what I would do. And she touched the border of his garment. We know from one of the other gospels, she had the faith convinced, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. So she knew of Jesus' power to heal. And immediately as she touches the hem of his garment, uh, her flow of blood stopped. And she felt it. She knew she had been healed. She's right back to where she was 12 years earlier. And that's an interesting um, experience. Sometimes if you have a disease that is like a protracted, long-term kind of a disease, um, if it is uh, bleeding, imagine the anemia, uh, iron shortage and all that she, energy that she is dealing with and, and the continual loss of blood from her life and you just forget what uh, life used to be like. And then all of a sudden that's returned to her. I remember when I, when I got diagnosed with cancer and I had a, um, they, my white blood count, uh, cell count went up to 425,000. And normal is 6,000 to 10,000. Uh, but you degrade so slowly that you don't even know what it, what it used to feel like to do whatever. And then they began the treatment for me, boom. And I mean a very nice bust out of that, not back all the way where, where that, that was, but immediately you know it and you appreciate it so much. This happens for her in, in an instant. And then uh, uh, Jesus said, who touched me? Remember, this is a big crowd, and, and everybody denied it. I didn't touch you. I didn't touch you. And Peter and those with him, they said, Master, uh, you're in the middle of a multitude. You're being thronged. You're being jostled by all of these people, and, and everybody's pressing you. And yet you say, who touched me? That didn't make any sense to them. They're trying to understand. Jesus gave them the clarification. Somebody touched me, for I perceived power uh, 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 going out from me. So she felt the power that she received from him in the healing. He felt it going out. He knew that that had happened. And it does teach us an, an important, uh, well-known lesson, but an important lesson related to uh, all of this is that in this entire scenario, he's fought, he is absolutely thronged by all of these people. And yet for all of these people, she's the only one that touches them with faith. And she's the only one that receives this dynamic uh, coming from him into her body. And it's one thing to come to church and to jostle Jesus or whatever, and, or join some kind of a religious crowd or whatever that's centered upon Jesus. It's another thing to come with faith. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know he can do this. 
And, and she had that, and he recognized that this dynamic had uh, come out of his body, and, and someone had been healed. He knew it before he even saw it. And so when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she was trying to hide, but she couldn't hide, she came trembling. What in the world is he going to do to me? Is he going to take this back because I did it the way that I did it? I mean, this is, everything's uncertain. In a moment, she's had her health given back to her and, and intent on just sneaking away and going forward in life, but no, there's more to it here. So she's trembling, she falls down before him, and then she declared to him in the presence of all of the people the reason she had touched him and, and, uh, and how she was healed immediately. And so she testifies to the experience. And so he said to her, uh, daughter, so he, Jesus talks about the demoniac as a man, he calls her a daughter. And, and uh, this beautiful uh, uh, term toward her, be of good cheer. And then he says, your faith has made you well. Didn't have anything to do with the hem of my garment. Didn't have anything to do with those things. Your faith is what made you well. Go in peace. And when he says, go in peace, he, say, he is saying, go without any concern that this healing that occurred in your life is in jeopardy. She, th th and that makes, is what makes me wonder where she's looking and th with the trembling and falling down that somehow this is going to be taken back from her. And he says, go in peace. Your healing is good. It's yours. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, now, you might put yourself in Jairus' shoes, and he's got to be, you know, this is a delay. My, da my daughter is on, uh, you know, the edge of death, and now we've got this other thing going on. It's a wonderful thing, but I've got a daughter that needs to be, uh, to, to be healed. And so, while all of this is happening, a messenger comes from his house, and they said to him, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher. Now, whoever delivered that message needs to take class uh, somehow. I don't care if he's the greatest message in, messenger in the world in terms of accuracy. Uh, there is something about a bedside manner on things. But, but he, he's, a, he's a man of the facts. Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the uh, teacher uh, anymore in, in terms of him now, now coming. It's, it's, it's too late. It's over. Uh, this guy can take care of, of uh, illness and disease, but uh, once the threshold of death is passed, uh, then it's hopeless. But when Jesus heard the message being delivered to the man, to Jairus. You notice that he answered him. He told Jairus. He said, do not be afraid. Only believe. And she will be made well. That's interesting, isn't it? He, he says, do not be afraid. Only believe. I remember one time I was in one of the lowest points of my life. And the Lord took me to this passage to speak those words to me. Do not be afraid. Why? Because I was afraid. Only believe. 
Now, when you go to somebody that's overwhelmed emotionally or overwhelmed in terms of a trial or in terms of a need, or um, you visit somebody in a hospital, they're not interested in hearing you tell them 20 things that they need to do or remember about God. Who can remember 20 things uh, about uh, God in your best day? Uh, what we can put our mind on and hold on to is one or two things. And that's what Jesus uh, uh, gives him here. Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. And I wonder if the Lord might speak to, again, some of us this evening and whatever, where a circumstance, and here, here's a, cla- this is a cla- this is a classic trial here, where um, at first he goes to get Jesus when the daughter is at death's door. And then the trial becomes worse, she dies. So what would Jesus have to say to us when a trial in our life goes from bad to worse and we can't believe that it could go from bad to worse? And his word to him is, do not be afraid, she will be made well. Only believe and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, so he continued the journey, he permitted no one to go in except for Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl, of course. Now they all wept and mourned for the the death of the girl at this point. But he said, do not weep. Uh, She is not dead, but she's sleeping. Now in those days, if you were dirt poor, when somebody you look, it's kind of like when people die today, and uh, you go, and I'm not, if you own a mortuary, I'm not picking on you. But you go to a mortuary, and, uh, and, and sometimes you'll see people uh, feel so guilty, so awful about the death, and I never treated him right, I never treated her right. Where are the $150,000 caskets uh, that we can now try and prove something it, at, uh, at, at this point? And so, uh, if you were poor, the very poorest, you would hire these, hire these wailers. Sometimes even in the Middle East, you can hear it today where over death, and it would be communicating that death has come into this family, in, into the community. And, uh, and so this guy, being the prominent man that he is, Jewish man that he is, he probably had a bunch of them uh, that were, uh, didn't need to be hired, just came to uh, mourn for the family and, 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 and announce the death and, and communicate their concern in, uh, in, in this way. And so uh, they're all weeping, they're mourning for her, and he said to them, uh, do not weep, uh, she's not dead, but she's sleeping. That's how Jesus views death. And they ridiculed him, knowing she was dead. Listen, if you've got a lifetime job of being a mourner in the rooms of dead people, then you know when people are dead and when they're not. I mean, you, you don't want to start too early, right? So these people knew death. They knew she's gone. So they laugh at him, uh, uh, all of this, knowing that she was dead. And again, thinking he's, uh, uh, this is going to incapacitate him in terms of meeting the need. But he put them all outside, and, uh, and, and then he took her by the hand. But let's stop there. 
First part of verse 54. He put them all outside. And when, when you have, as Jairus does here, when you have a promise from God, again, for us from the Scriptures, whereas do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. That's the promise he has from, from uh, Jesus. And, and you are in the middle of this kind of a trial, then we do well to follow Jesus' example here of putting out anyone who ridicules God or ridicules the idea of His power or ridicules uh, the, uh, the truthfulness of His promises and get them out of your life as an influence. And in these kind of circumstances, we need to surround ourselves with people who are going to encourage us in God's promises in a trial like this. And so he put them all outside. He's not going to have uh, uh, them and their influence be present. He took her then by the hand and he said uh, to her, little girl, arise. And then her spirit returned and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And so probably she had been sick for a long time and uh, hadn't been eating or drinking. And so Jesus, with this kind of tenderness, uh, has dealt with this incredible need of raising her from the dead. Uh, but this, this touch of gentleness and care uh, orders that she be given to some, something to eat in her, her hungry condition. And her parents were astonished. And Jesus then charged them uh, to tell no one what had happened. Well, why would he do that? Man, if I did something like that, you'd never hear the end of it. You too. So why would he say, don't let anyone know? He probably wouldn't be able to get out of the house and out of Capernaum if the news got out. And so he probably slips away, moves on further in the Father's will for his life, and then lets the news become broadly known after he's been able to do that. And so we'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick things up, Lord willing, next week, starting uh, chapter 9. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. But before we do, I mean, what, what beautiful portraits of Jesus that are here um, in in the Bible. And, uh, um, and if you are here tonight and you have never trusted him, in Him as your Savior and as your Lord, uh, tonight's the night to do that. And there's going to be pastors and others up in front, and we would love to pray with you to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, become one of His disciples and His followers, begin the relationship with God that you have been created for. If you need prayer for anything, uh, tonight, any need in your life, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for these glimpses, these priceless glimpses of, of our Savior in your Scripture and how we treasure them and how they speak to us all the days uh, of our life. And it makes us pinch ourselves that we can have a Savior like this. There's nothing 
as we look at his life that we would ever say, I wish he had done this differently or said that differently. He's perfect exactly as he is. And we are so grateful for him. Grateful for, to look at these incidents in his life knowing that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever and all of this in our lives as well. And we pray that everywhere that you have ministered in the intimacy of your spirit, within our hearts, in that place that we've heard your voice concerning something specific in our own individual lives, that we would treasure that and that we would hold on to that, uh, that your voice to us. We treasure your voice. We pray too and for our church family, and we ask that as so many will be heading in so many directions in this coming week with Thanksgiving, that you would keep everyone safe, that you would keep everyone um, healthy. And then, Lord, we pray that you would give us an opportunity to uh, share our testimony or an opportunity for people, family, friends, others, to once again see the great undeniable difference that you have made in our lives. Uh, for your glory. And we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.